The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, this is Emily Day, and this is a Lawfare podcast episode from the Archive for September 25th, 2021. Yesterday, leaders of the United States, Japan, India, and Australia gathered to discuss ways to counter China's growing influence in Asia. India, an initially reluctant member of the Quad, is one key to the alliance's success. So this week, I picked an episode from the archives in which Ambassador Shivshankar Menon, former National Security Advisor and former Foreign Secretary to the Government of India, gave a speech in 2014 at Brookings discussing India's evolving role in global affairs. I'm Cody Poplin, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 11th, 2014. That was Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon you just heard, India's former National Security Advisor from January in 2010 until May of 2014, and former Foreign Secretary from 2006 to 2009. Ambassador Menon gave a keynote address this week at the Brookings Institution entitled, India's Role in the World. In his address, Ambassador Menon discusses the new optimism and U.S.-India bilateral relations on the hills of newly elected Prime Minister Narendra Modi's recent visit. Ambassador Menon also delves into India's relations with Pakistan and other countries in the region, its evolving outlook on China, and how India and the United States can forge new ties on counterterrorism and defense cooperation. Strobe Talbot, president of the Brookings Institution, introduced Ambassador Menon and moderated the conversation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode number 95, Ambassador Shiv Shankar Menon and India's role in the world. This is, uh, I think, going to be not just a educational and stimulating 90 minutes or so, but if we're allowed to use the word fun uh, <laughs> on the to- kinds of top topics we're going to be uh, discussing, uh, it, will, uh, it will certainly so qualify. I think, uh, as I look around the room, well, there are a few folks I don't uh, recognize. There are a whole lot that I do. And you all, I know, uh, share the admiration that Martin Indyk and Tanvi Madan and I and other colleagues here at Brookings have for Shivshankar Menon. He has been someone that uh, I've had the good fortune to know for 
quite a number of years. Uh, he actually got to know Martin uh, before that among his many, many important posts, which I suspect you all know include three assignments in Beijing, uh, including one as ambassador, a high commissioner in Pakistan, foreign secretary, of course, national security advisor to the previous Indian government. He was also, I believe, the second Indian ambassador in, in Israel, uh, and that was an assignment that overlapped uh, with, uh, with Martin. Uh, Shanker is uh, born to diplomacy, if I can put it that way. He is the part of the third generation of his family that has uh, served uh, his country uh, so well. Uh, and he now is in a position to uh, rest a little bit, see more of his uh, family, some of which is uh, here in the U.S., uh, and also to reflect on his career and uh, to help those of us who are trying to understand uh, what's going on in the world, which is a particular challenge, I might say, these days. Uh, and I think he's going to do that uh, with us uh, this morning. While, of course, we're going to want to talk about the U.S.-Indian uh, relationship, past, present, and, and future, Shanker is, uh, as we sometimes put it around here, a global guy, uh, sort of like Martin Indyk. Uh, he knows a lot about one region, but he knows a whole lot about uh, the world. So what I'm going to propose is that he and I start a dialogue, and then we'll make it uh, a multilogue uh, and bring you into it uh, in a half an hour or so. So, uh, Shankar, thank you so much for being with us. And perhaps maybe the obvious and appropriate place to start would be to get your take on the meeting between our two leaders. Uh, a number of us were struck here by the uh, not just the aspirational outcome, uh, but the specificity, the list of areas where India and the United States not only can find some common ground and common interests, but already have and are going to build on those. So what is uh, your overall assessment, both of the meeting itself and what we could see of it uh, uh, publicly, and what do you see as the principal opportunities and, 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 for that matter, the obstacles as well moving forward? Thank you, Strobe, and thank you for, for having me. Thank you for that over-generous introduction. As you can see, he's a friend. He's biased. But, and thank you for what you said. It's uh, Because that's a hard sort of billing to, to live up to. But, and, not, for, not for you, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, on the visit and, and India-U.S. relations, I, I think you're absolutely right. It was clearly a good visit in several senses. It cleared some of the cobwebs. I think there was a sense, at least in the public mind, of drift in India-U.S. relations before the visit. Certainly in India, that's gone. It got wall-to-wall -wall coverage in the media. There's been a lot of commentary, and most of it very positive. But I think, for me, the key is what you said, the joint statement, apart from drawing on what Brookings had done in terms of work beforehand. 
If you look at the kind of detailed work that India and the U.S. are doing together and that listing, it's, it really shows you how far that relationship has come in the last 10 years or so and how far we've progressed and, and the whole range of issues on which there is congruence. And this is congruence built not just in terms of global issues and worldview or in terms of, oh, we're all, we all aspire for the same kind of world, we have share the same values. But it's also congruence built from the bottom up, which is what's apparent, I think. And that's, that was, I think, one of the achievements of the visit. The other, I think, is that you have a new government in India, which clearly has, has plans, has, has ambitions, has aspirations, and it's attached itself very firmly to a much stronger relationship with the U.S. And I think that's the message that got out in India. Uh, of course, I think he, you know, he was very active in terms of public diplomacy. And the public diplomacy side of, of the relationship was really quite impressive. So for me, it was a good visit. Uh, there are those who say, ah, but where's the meat? Where are all these little concrete outcomes? I don't think prime ministers visit to actually produce nickel and dime outcome. I don't think that's the purpose. The purpose is to actually push the relationship as a whole forward, and I think that was achieved. Uh, we, one thing with India-U.S. relations is our political cycles don't coincide. Uh, and we're both democracies, we know what that means. We, we have electoral cycles of effectiveness in administration and government. Uh, and I think it's important that we use visits like this to actually flatten the sine curve, if it's possible. And I think we've done that. We've done that successfully and consistently over various kinds of governments in India and various administrations in the U.S. So for me, the last 15 years is really steadily upwards and successful. And that's the big picture that I think the visit really confirmed. Let me, if I could, touch upon a couple of regional issues, almost boxing the, uh, the compass, uh, starting with China. And the reason for starting with China, and by the way, there, uh, much of our China team is, is here, is not just because you know that country so well, but because the last uh, several weeks, including the run-up to the prime minister's visit here, saw some fresh tensions in the India-China relationship. And as, of course, you know, uh, while the Obama administration is trying to strike a balance between keeping the positives in the relationship, there's also rising concern about precisely the issue that has uh, somewhat roiled the India-China relationship, namely aggressiveness with regard to uh, territorial uh, claims. Uh, back in 2000, it was suggested by a number of foreign policy uh, thinkers in this country that uh, the United States should solidify its relationship with India as a strategic hedge against China. A number of us uh, here and elsewhere don't think that's a good idea. We shouldn't be playing three-handed poker against each other. But 
we are in a situation where there is uh, apprehension or, uh, let's say, uh, a wariness uh, in both capitals, New Delhi and Washington, about what China's up to. What do you think China's up to, and what specifically was it up to uh, just at the time that the Chinese president and the Indian prime minister were meeting? Well, I think with China, yes, certainly, I think for both the U.S. and India, China is a preoccupation. It's probably, for us, a major strategic challenge in terms of how we deal with it. Do we understand China? I don't know. It's China studies is a growth industry. It's judging by that, I think we probably understand China less today than we did before, even though we have so much more to do with China, so much more contact, so much more in terms of visits. Uh, we have a very complex relationship with China where, yes, China is our largest trading partner in goods, not in goods and services, I and mean, that's the U.S., uh, we have the world's largest boundary dispute with China. We rub up against each other because we basically we share a periphery, and our periphery is theirs and vice versa. Uh, we have other issues which, which divide us, but we also have a whole set of issues on which we work together, where unless we work together, actually, it's going to be difficult to, to move the, to to see the peaceful environment that we need to transform India. So I think we are seeking with China very much what the U.S. is seeking. We're, we're not seeking confrontation. We're trying to build a cooperative relationship in which both sides have stakes actually in, in producing an improving climate of relations and responsible behavior. Now, can we manage the boundary dispute? I think we've shown over the last, well now, 30 years that it can be managed. And since 1993, when we signed the first agreement with China about maintaining the status quo on the, on the border, I think we've done so. It's been a relatively peaceful boundary. But it's still a political issue with potential to actually cloud the rest of the relationship. The basic agreement which was reached when Rajiv Gandhi visited in 88 was that we'd separate the boundary, relation, boundary issue from the rest of the relationship. And the rest of the relationship has grown as a result. I mean, there's almost 10,000 Indian students in China today, which is it's quite a large number when you think of it. Uh, so it is going to stay complex. I think the Xi Jinping visit, like previous visits, Li Keqiang's visit last year, for instance, all the way back to Hu Jintao's visit in 2006, uh, saw m more of the same. You saw very strong emphasis on economic ties and on building those. You saw a serious discussion on the political and geopolitical issues. And you saw a stark reminder that there was a boundary question which needs to be settled. Now, for the first time in many years, both sides, India and China, are saying we need to settle this quickly. Prime Minister Modi has said this. Uh, President Xi Jinping has said it since March last year. That we need to, and in the past, one side or the other was saying, let's settle this now. The other side was saying, let's push it to the next generation, which is what Deng Xiaoping used to say. Uh, let's see. 
So, at the very least, these incursions would have concentrated minds on both sides. And I think we need to actually see what they do, uh, whether both governments now can actually address the issue, can they find a solution, or do they kick the ball forward and say, okay, we'll keep managing the problem, but we won't settle it because it's politically too complex. I, I think that's still an open question. I don't think we can say how it's going to evolve. So but I don't think, you know, some of the commentary and so on has been pretty hysterical about the incursions. I mean, frankly, four men and a dog in a tent are no military threat. I mean, this is, this is political. And I think we need to look at it as such, rather than as, oh, it's about to erupt into some form of military conflict and so on. Um, staying with the issue of disputed borders. But for the first time, and this time, you had, during the Modi visit to the U.S., a reference by both India and the U.S. to the South China Sea, to mm -hmm. territorial issues and so on. And so clearly, I think, we share, we have a shared concern there about how these things are going to evolve in the region as a whole, in the Asia-Pacific. Staying with the issue of your neighbors and borders, how do you read the latest LOC this troubles that are in the paper today? With Pakistan? With Pakistan. And it's a sad thing to say, but every time you have a leader in Pakistan who makes it clear that he wants to improve relations with India, we, we seem to have trouble. Either on and the he LOC, seems to have, and he seems to and have. And then he seems to have trouble subsequently, either on the LOC or in terms of terrorist incidents. It's, I don't know, it's, it's depressing, actually, when you think of it in those terms. And it's been so consistent that, you know, beyond a point, it cannot be coincidence. It makes you, and I find that very sad, because it actually prevents, you know, the region, Pakistan, us, from really using the potential that is there. I mean, three years that I lived in Pakistan, it was popular among the people to improve relations with India. Yeah. But there were very strong institutional and other interests against it, which would seem to lead to this situation. That's my, my problem with it. Now, the individual incidents, I, I don't know. They've asked for a flag meeting. They'll probably do that later, day tomorrow. Let's see. Well, there's a, I, well, there's a I, won't, I won't lead you, but my, my, own, my own sense is that there's a fundamental difference between the, the China problem in this regard and the Pakistani one. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, it's uh, manifest that... Uh, that there is almost a structural tension between the elected political leadership and the military and the ISI. There, there's a tug of war going on. There's a huge difference, actually, between the two. Even if you just look at the lines, the LOC with Pakistan and the LAC with China, the LOC with Pakistan is actually jointly demarcated. It's drawn on a map. The two DGMOs have signed it. There are written agreements about respecting it, where it runs, and all that. And yet, that's the one that's hot, that's live. That's the one that terrorists cross. That's the one where actually firing takes place. 
The LAC with China is actually not jointly demarcated or delineated on a map. It's actually, it's a concept more than, than a line, if you, if you think of it. And yet, it's, it's calm. The last death on that line occurred in 1975, October. That's a long time ago. No shots have been fired for a very, very, very long time on, along that line. And there's no such confrontation or build-up troops. In fact, most of it is just empty territory up above 18,000 feet. It's, it's not even... So there's a, there's a huge difference between the actual situation on both lines. Uh, structural differences are clear. I mean, in, in one case, you're dealing with, well, 4,000 years of statecraft. In the other case, you're not sure you're dealing with a state. So there is a difference. Well, and Nawaz Sharif, of course, has lived through the perils of that relationship uh, back in uh, the, after the, during and after the Cargill uh, crisis, which almost led to his execution. Um, staying in that part of the neighborhood, the triangular relationship among, uh, well, it's even quadrangular relationship, you could say, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the United States. Would you give us your sense of how things are looking now that there seems to be a political reconciliation uh, as to the leadership of, of Afghanistan? And, how do you read that, particularly given the determination of the United States to continue its drawdown? Well, you know, we've talked about this before. I've, I've never been among the Cassandras who said it's all going to fall apart. Yes, I think the situation in Afghanistan maybe will reach a lower equilibrium or revert to an earlier equilibrium, maybe. But it seems to me that there, Afghanistan has changed enough in the last 13, 14 years that the neighbors also see an interest in a much more stable situation in Afghanistan, which maybe they didn't 15 years ago. Uh, and that objectively speaking, we can work together in the region, but most important with the U.S., to try and strengthen those forces so that all these worst-case scenarios that we've been talking about and that are used to, to actually frighten us into, into doing what their various proponents would have us do, uh, I, I, do, I think those can be avoided, that we can avoid all these worst-case scenarios. So my own sense of it is that you have the beginnings of a government of national unity in Afghanistan. You have a stated determination on all sides to try and avoid the worst possible scenarios. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, what worries me, though, is when there are people who are influential who can actually help to bring this about, bring better outcomes about in the Afghanistan situation. And we need to get them involved, Iran for one has influence, has an interest. Uh, China, we've been talking to China, to the Russians, 
And ultimately, the Pakistanis have to make up their own mind about what kind of future they want here. But I think, as I, I think there's room for a lot more political, diplomatic, other work, economic work as well, as well as the purely military aspect. If we leave, treat it as purely a military problem, which unfortunately is what we've tended to do increasingly, the less we have much less chance of, of producing anything we can live with. Well, I don't want to be a Cassandra either, although, as I recall, Cassandra ended up being right. Right. Uh, that's, that's the only problem with that one. Uh, but just looking backwards rather than forward, one of the depressing constants uh, in... Look what happened to Cassandra. Uh, <laughs> one, of, one of the uh, depressing constants in, in Pakistan is uh, a... A stubborn zero-sum attitude towards uh, anything going on in the neighborhood. If uh, if India wants to do it, including in uh, in, in this case, uh, help stabilize Afghanistan, it will be seen by very powerful forces in Pakistan as therefore, by definition, contrary to Pakistani's Pakistan's interests. And I don't see any change in that at the moment. Do you? Well, I think the primary victim of that is Pakistan itself, of that state of mind, that attitude. And I think it's clear when you, you look at the situation today. So whether that mindset will change or not, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not an optimist, not necessarily. Rather than but, go ahead. But that's only one factor. And that's where what the U.S. does, what other people do, becomes so important. Well, I was going to say, just drawing from what you've said, maybe at, rather than making a prediction, just to pose it as a question, uh, is, it, is it fair and useful to wonder if Pakistan, the, the prevailing attitude in Pakistan were no longer to treat India as the existential threat to Pakistan statehood, but to look inside Pakistan itself uh, for that threat. That would be... Far be it for me to speak for Pakistan. It's well, what the prevailing... No, besides, there are many attitudes in Pakistan. I mean, it really depends who you ask, who you talk to. And it depends on how power is is balanced between them, between those various elements. I, I don't think it's, it's a straightforward, okay, this is Pakistan's attitude. I, I, I wouldn't deal with it as such. Well, yeah, but uh, up until now, it hasn't been, it hasn't been, equal, now, it hasn't it been was, equilibrium. It was those who said what, yes. what you said, who actually had preponderance. But I think, and this is, I think, the change, if you look at the situation in Pakistan, it's, I think power is much more evenly distributed today than it was before. And I think that's what you're seeing. But I'm, I'm not an optimist. I'm not saying, oh, no, you know, everything's changed and everything's now going to be wonderful. Not at all. Well, when we go to um, an open discussion, which we will before too long, there are a couple of Schaefer's here who I would 
I, I hope we'll, we'll, we'll get in on, uh, on this. But um, Shanker did mention more than just in passing uh, Iran. Uh, that is obviously a very preoccupying, a preoccupying subject uh, in this town. Uh, give us your own perspective on where Iran is in its evolution uh, and what the uh, remaining tough issues are and where there may be some opportunities where, that we should be thinking about uh, here in this city. Well, I think we normally look, we meaning us in India, we, we look at Iran in a, in a broader context. I think on the nuclear issue, it's clear. We and the U.S. and all right-thinking people want to see that resolved so that there isn't another nuclear weapon state in the region. There's quite enough already. But Iran for us is also a potential factor of stability, whether in Afghanistan, whether in the Gulf, whether in energy markets, she's important, important in Central Asia as well. And frankly, if we are to fight radical extremism throughout that region, I think we need to work with whoever we can work with. And Iran, I think, has, has interests there which need to be harnessed. Now, the problem with the situation today is that while we all say we seek the same goals, we refuse to talk to each other. And we refuse to actually work together. That, for us, is not a happy situation especially when you're facing things like ISIS. And I think it's important that we actually get everybody together on the issues where we can. I'm not saying that you need to solve everything to do anything. You need to actually pick and choose your issues, build the coalitions that work. Go, and I, I think these are serious issues. As you said, Afghanistan, very serious issue. ISIS, serious issue. Nuclear issue, equally serious. But I don't think you can make everything conditional on one being resolved or being completely satisfactory. That's, to my mind, the only way to make progress here. Now, I know this is not the prevalent, this is not conventional wisdom in, in this town, but that's how it looks to us because we're sitting in the middle of it. We're affected by all of this every day at home. And that's... So, so let's have an argument. Well, uh, we, we, we may, but let me just pick up on your own experience. You've made, what, seven or eight trips to Iran, going back how far? Going back eight years. Um, and how, since not very many of us in this room uh, have been there, uh, in my case, I had the last interview with the Shah, uh, so you can. I'm amazed I've been alive that long, but in any event, uh, you've seen it up close. How would you assess the Rouhani uh, government uh, by comparison with its predecessor and the trajectory since the revolution? I think you need to apply a shifted frame of reference when when you look at at Iran. Uh, when you actually, for instance, you look at the role of women in Iran, 
I mean, the, the public images, everybody wears each other. It's very traditional. And yet, if you look at the degrees of freedom within that shifted frame of reference, participation in government, in posts, in everything, it's probably higher than most other countries. I'd say every other country in the region, except Israel. And now, so you have this odd problem of perception of, of what Iran is like, of, of how it works, how it operates. And it's true, it is a shifted frame. It's a very different frame from what we are used to. You look at the media, for instance. Uh, but there is space in there for what in other societies would be regarded as political activity, which, as long as it's not called political. It's, now, I, do, I don't know. I, I'm probably being very unclear here. But the fact is, that I think we need to open our minds a little bit more about how we look at Iran and developments in Iran. Certainly the Rouhani government is, is part of that process of moving the frame and moving it closer to how the rest of the world frames issues and looks at them. Closer, not yet identical, but closer. I'm going to uh, ask for hands to go up in just a moment, so please uh, have your thoughts, comments, uh, ready, but I do want to come back to, to ISIS. Uh, you've referred to it a number of times, and obviously it is uh, now a very high priority of uh, the current administration here. The phenomenon itself is still hard for many of us to understand. It came out of the blue. It was uh, almost what uh, Martin and his colleagues call a black swan. Uh, it's also an example of uh, the extraordinary and often malignant power of non-state actors. But here's a non-state actor that claims to be a, a state. But it's so mysterious we don't even know what the right acronym is uh, uh, for it. And it has aspirations moving in your direction. I might add also, leave it to me to drop Russia into the conversation, moving into uh, in Russia's direction as well. Uh, against that backdrop, what, what is your view and assessment of the coalition that the United States is putting together and is already operating? And uh, can you see uh, opportunities and room for India to be uh, in some way involved in that? I'm sure India will do what it can. In terms of uh, actual, you know, I think because this phenomenon is something that cuts across the whole region. ISIS itself is a product of, of the infinite fission that happens in extreme groups. I mean, you've seen this happen with various, you saw it happen with anarchists, you saw it happen with communist movements, you now see it happening with extreme political Islam as well. And you see what it does to Al-Qaeda. It, it prompts Al-Qaeda to suddenly waking up and setting up a branch for South Asia. And I'm sure it will happen to ISIS as well one day. There will be a more radical version of ISIS. Well, hopefully each successive split is going to get smaller and smaller and more extreme and more isolated. Uh, 
But it needs to be dealt with, not just militarily, it needs to be dealt with politically, socially, at a whole set of levels. Uh, my fear today is that the coalition is primarily looking at this as a, as a military problem. And I don't think it, it's so easy to solve in that way. But if that coalition can evolve, starting with the intelligence, which I know we all already work on together and have been working on together for some time, but going on to the other end of, of public actions so or the narrative that we tell of ISIS, I mean, there's a point beyond which I think we're some of ISIS's most effective propaganda is being done by us, by, by our media today. And I think we need to, to actually try and broaden the, what we're doing against this phenomenon. And it's not only ISIS. It has to be ISIS and groups like ISIS and all the various spin-offs and so on. And I think that's, that's the important thing. Although I, I love the I it's, it's it's good to you know to have one enemy and you know and put that out there. It's, it's useful. It's a useful political device domestically, but I don't think it's so useful in terms of a strategy to contain this. I, I admire the phrase uh, "infinite vision of extreme groups," but uh, un unfortunately, there's also a, a a component of fusion, which is to say, you've got. Uh, ultra-extreme uh, Islamic radicals hooking up with uh, former officers of Saddam Hussein's uh, army, who were, of course, uh, to one degree or another, uh, secular, which has given them a, a additional competency of the worst, uh, the worst kind. Uh, let's uh, begin. Uh, Taisy, I, I, was, I was hoping you'd be up very early. Thanks. Uh, just... Uh, there's a mic. Tacey Schaefer, non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. Uh, and it's lovely to see you here again. I want to go back to the title that your talk was given, India's Role in the World. And I want to uh, uh, ask you to think for us out loud about the phrase that keeps coming up, strategic autonomy, which in some respects is the intellectual heir to the non-alignment tradition. Uh, in practice, there are moments when it looks like avoiding choices that might con constrain one in future. How does that work in an increasingly globalized world in which India's economy is increasingly uh, integrated? How does that work with the relationship with the United States and with the other large powers that are important to India? Well, I'm Actually, I'm a bit surprised that it causes so much concern. Uh, I'm asking for a description, not expressing worry. I'm curious. Because to me, strategic autonomy only means saying that we're going to pursue our own interests. Now, if you put it like that, that's what every state does. I, I don't see that as being somehow unique to India. Uh, the U.S. followed a similar policy for most of its history, actually. Uh, so what does strategic autonomy mean? It doesn't mean I won't work with anybody else, I won't talk to anybody else, I won't participate. 
in the, in the international community? Not at all. In fact, if you look at it, India has really been, after China, probably the greatest beneficiary of global inter interdependence, of the free trade investment, other flows, since the end of the Cold War, once the world opened up and interdependence really became a, rea a reality. I think India's one of the biggest. So strategic autonomy doesn't mean I'll cut myself off from the rest of the world, not at all. It only means I'll pursue my own interests and choose where I engage, and how I engage will be determined by my interests, not the interests of a coalition, not the interests of another partner, but where there's congruence, of course we'll work together. And I don't think at the very broad levels it seems to me that there is there is sufficient congruence for the phrase not to worry anybody else, for strategic autonomy not to be a worry. It's with the US it's clear. I mean as I said, you look at that joint statement, look at the range of issues that we're actually working together on. When you look at defense, you look at at climate change, you look at energy, you look at this, I mean, whether it's counterterrorism, whether it's, you name it, all these issues, and we're working together. But that doesn't affect strategic autonomy. It's strategic autonomy, to my mind, is really taking the decisions based on your sense of what your national interest is. So, I... So to say that this is non-alignment, I mean, you can't be non-aligned in a polycentric world. I mean, it's, that's not, that doesn't make much sense. Yes, the gentleman there. Interesting talk. Thank you for your being here. I have a question on... Uh, trade and investment, which is an important part of component of foreign policy. And uh, I'm in manufacturing, so some of the things that come up are the sanctity of contract, like retrospective taxation that the previous government had, and the BJP has been hesitating and uh, in endorsing the, the trade agreement that Congress had agreed to. So what is your opinion on that? Well, I think there's... I think there are still issues there which need to be sorted out. On the trade facilitation agreement, I think their understanding of what was agreed at Bali is maybe different from what the U.S. negotiators thought was agreed. They thought both things would be settled simultaneously, whether it was food security and trade facilitation. And I think they're still open to sit down and talk that through. I think that's what they decided during the visit. Uh, on uh, taxation and other issues, they've, they've made some progress already. I mean, you've seen the announcements before the Prime Minister came to the U.S. Uh, but let's see. I, I think they've also made it clear that they don't expect to retroactively apply various taxation measures. I think Finance Minister Jaitley said so in public. Uh, but whether they need to actually do something in the law and so on, they haven't decided yet. That's still only a proposal, actually, under the direct tax code, which which is on the table. They haven't actually decided yet, and I think they still have some more work to do on that. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022. And they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of, called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers, and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there, and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay, and I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft doxing and phishing scams, Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yes, sir. And then the lady next to you. Just one sec. It pains me, sir, to ask this question. I am a freedom fighter, 1971 Liberation War of Bangladesh. India helped us in the war in getting independence. Uh, with a battle casualty on my body and with a battle honor on my chest, I ask you this question. You are very involved with the LBA and the Tista Baraj water sharing, which hasn't been done. We have a new issue between Bangladesh and India right now. IS has sent their recruiting teams in India and Bangladesh. We have apprehended many of them. And uh, the, uh, the people engaged in recruitment, they are from Europe. They are Muslims from Europe. And still we have information that your West Bengal government of Mamata Banerjee and her one of the top-ranking members of the parliament, Imran, is aiding Bangladeshi fundamentalists to up the, to throughout the secular government. In this complex situation, as a well-wisher of India, as a friend of India, we freedom fighters are deeply offended. You were one of our hopes when you were in the government, but nothing was done till now. What do you think should be done at this stage? Thank you, sir. I wouldn't say nothing has been done till now. In fact, one of the biggest successes that we've had is what we've done together against extremism against in our counterterrorism efforts, both sides. And that applies both sides of the border, where we've worked together. And if you look at the results over the last five years, it's been quite spectacular. Uh, I think there's no question that what the, the issue you've raised of IS, but not just IS, various other groups also, I think that's very important, and that, I think it's clear. On both sides, there's a determination to do something. We have done a lot in the last few years. The LBA, I think the BJP has now announced that they will see it through, that they will, and when Mrs. Sushma Swaraj visited Dhaka, I think she made that quite clear. That should make it possible to do what we need to do in our own parliament because we will then have the numbers. On TISTA, you know, what did the agreement, the draft agreement say, the one that was... Uh, it said that Bangladesh would receive 50% of the flow at Gazaldoba, at the barrage on our side, at Dalia Barrage on their side, and that for 15 years we would jointly measure 
the flows, and then come to an agreement about how to share. So what's happening now? Today, Bangladesh is getting 100% of what goes past Gazaldova at Dalia, including all the recharge and whatever. So in actual practice, Bangladesh is actually doing better than the agreement would have given them, if you look at the practice of it. So for me, this is actually a political issue of do we implement what we agree or not. We are implementing it in practice. We are sharing data, both India and Bangladesh, on the flows. We, and we are establishing a joint record of flows so that when the time comes, when both sides feel ready and emotions calm down on both sides, we'll be able to actually do a sharing on the basis of that. So I don't think there's actual harm to Bangladesh today. In fact, if anything, there's a net gain on the flows on the river, on the Tista. But you're right. The agreement has to be done. It has to be signed. And I think that political thorn needs to be pulled. And I think that's something that today is stuck in Indian politics. Now, uh, a lot of it depends on the relationship between the government in West Bengal and the government in Delhi. So it's really our fault. It's an internal issue of our own that we have to sort out among ourselves. But I don't think you need to feel aggrieved in practice on that because you're actually getting the water. But counterterrorism is something that we will have to keep working harder and harder at. I mean, the threats are only growing. It's not only this. If you look across into Myanmar, into the Rohingyas, into what's happening across the whole region. And I think we all have an, ex an, an interest in working together. And that, that's one place where I think we have been successful, where we've actually achieved a lot. But, you know, counterterrorism is the kind of thing where, you know, what's success? Success is negative. Success is preventing something from happening. And it's much harder to make that case than to say you've done something. Uh, but uh, if you look at the record over the last few years, I think India and Bangladesh have a, have a really good record of this. Like, uh, sorry, no, please. Uh, just, just one per, per person. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Jennifer Chen with Shinja Media Group. Would you please talk about your assessment about the current Indian military technology? And is there any, any impact? Can you repeat that? Uh, would you please talk about your assessment of the current Indian military technology? And also, is there any impact about long-term Indian-Russia defense cooperation to the recent U.S.-Indian uh, joint development of high-tech uh, weaponry? Thank you. I, I'm no one to assess technology. I, I'm no, no great expert on this. But on uh, will the India-U.S. defense technology initiative, will it affect what we do with Russia? No, I don't see why it should. I think that's an example of the strategic autonomy that uh, we, and it's been true throughout. I think that's something that's gone on right through. We're here. And then I'll go to the back of the room. Sanjeev Joshipura in a uh, in consultant on India-U.S. business relations. Uh, Mr. Menon, I'd like you to Comment for a minute, if you would, on SARC and ASEAN. Uh, SARC has been viewed as a fairly moribund body uh, in the recent past, and that's perhaps an 
indication of the lack of strength of a lot of the economies that make up SARC, barring, of course, the 800-pound elephant in the room, India. On the other hand, ASEAN is a much more dynamic group of countries. Uh, and so my question is, the Modi government obviously is one that's very focused on India's economic development and progress. So what can India do to further increase its ties and cement its ties more with the ASEAN nations? Thank you. Well, I think what we've tried to do... Well, firstly, I don't think it's true to say that SARC is moribund. If you look at how long SARC took to do SAFTA, free trade agreement within SARC, and how long ASEAN took to do theirs, actually SARC was quicker. Uh, but the fact is that growth in ASEAN didn't come from the ASEAN free trade agreement, just as economic growth in South Asia which actually has been one of the relatively better-performing regions in the last decade or so in the world. If you look at it, that hasn't come from SAFTA. It's come from a network of individual agreements that started off with the India-Sri Lanka FTA in 97, 98, when we negotiated it. And it's come from actually improving the bilateral relationships across the board in the region, and finding complementarities. Say with Bangladesh, for instance, three years ago, two years ago, we, we abolished all duties on everything except a few, very few, I mean, a few things like liquor and meat and so on. Uh, so, and the same thing with, with Nepal, with Bhutan, with the Maldives, in effect, yes. With Sri Lanka, we have an FTA, and we've been talking about improving on it for the future. The big exception within South Asia is really Pakistan, India, where we're still waiting for MFN. But we give Pakistan MFN and also the benefits of SAFTA, actually, in practice. Uh, so I wouldn't say that, you know, Sa SARC is moribund. I would only say that we need to look at these organizations, whether it's SARC, whether it's ASEAN, in the, in the true, true light of of how much of a role they actually play and what the real drivers of economic progress and change are. With ASEAN, we've been looking at a, at a bigger and better. We've, we did the free trade and goods. We've done services now. We're looking at actually improving it. We've done individual reviews with the countries, with Singapore, with Thailand, with the others. And I think we're at the stage where some of the countries are willing to be much more ambitious. Uh, it's my hope that we will also be much more ambitious than we were in the past. It's, I can't speak. I'm not in government. I speak for myself now here. And it seems to me logical that for an economy of India's size and complexity, you know, we should be able to be much more ambitious in our individual agreements here, not just with ASEAN, but with the U.S. as well. I mean, that's... The gentleman in the far back, and then Martin. Deepak from Voice of America. And uh, looking at the recent escalation between India and Pakistan and the fact that Nawaz Sharif is facing internal political challenges and um, his position is not very strong as it was a few months ago. And the fact that on the other side we have Modi, uh, Mr. Modi, who advocates a very robust foreign policy, and we have a national security advisor whose views on Pakistan are well-known. So what do you think uh, about the future of both the countries? Where are they heading for and what it means for Afghanistan? 
I think you've answered your question in the long introduction. <laughs> it was not, if you can, please. <laughs> That's very economical. Uh, Martin. I hope I don't answer my question. Uh, Shankar, thank you uh, uh, for joining us this morning. It's a real honor to uh, have the pleasure of hosting you here at Brookings. Uh, I uh, wanted to come back to uh, Prime Minister Modi's uh, visit to the United States. Uh, one of the uh, notable meetings that he had in, in uh, New York, although it didn't get any attention here, was his meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. And as we've discussed, um, Prime Minister Modi's spokesman afterwards said, uh, when asked, did uh, the recent war in Gaza come up in their conversation, he said, no, Gaza didn't come up. Um, if you look back at the uh, development of relations between India and, and Israel from your time as uh, ambassador there back in the 1990s to now, um, Tell us a little bit about how that's developed, if you would, and um, is the fact that Gaza didn't come up an indicative of the fact that the, that the Palestinian issue is not a constraint or the failure to resolve the Palestinian issue is really not a, no longer a constraint on the relationship between Israel and India? I, I think it's, to answer your last question first, I... I think it's a little early to draw conclusions from silence. But it's clear that we have a government in India which wants to move the relationship with Israel forward considerably and is much more positively inclined to doing so uh, for many reasons. And it's, it's a traditional, the party in power has traditionally looked at that relationship much more positively. Uh, but today, as a result of what we've done together, and not just since we opened embassies in uh, 92, 93, but since, uh, actually, since the foundation of the State of Israel, and we recognized Israel the day after it was, it was formed, uh, and we've had an Israeli consulate in India, but we've actually worked together on, on issues, whether it's defense issues, whether it's, it's, counter -intelli it's intelligence and counterterrorism, on various issues we've worked together. Uh, we actually faced a, a Saudi oil embargo for seven days in 1974 because we dealt with Israel a long time ago. But uh, I think today that's a very popular relationship in India. Uh, it it has popular traction to so you've reached i think a stage in the relationship where it's actually ready to to move on to other things now i wouldn't say therefore that oh people have forgotten the palestinian issue that this is not an issue anymore that for me is a is a bridge too far at present i i don't think silence is enough there was another phrase in the briefing after the after the meeting about the Prime Minister Netanyahu speaking at some length on Iran, which I think gives you an idea of the complexity of, of the relationship, of what we're dealing with here. The wonderful part of the relationship, at least in my experience, is that we're able to talk all these issues through. 
between India and Israel and openly to put them on the table. Uh, and it's uh, maybe it's it's something that both countries share this 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 love of talking. Yes, I believe. Thank you. Um, since you've been at the apex of foreign policy decision-making in India for so long, I was wondering, is there a medium or long-term view that India has about the U.S.-India relationship? Um, I'm not talking about the short term because that's open to negotiations. There are convergences. There are disagreements, complaints. But is there a, is there a view of where the relationship can head and to sort of take off from what Tezi Schaefer said earlier, is there sort of uh, uh, divergence between strategic autonomy and strategic partnership? Mm. I, I don't see a divergence between the two. Because if you're going to have a partnership, it has to be based on a sense of self-interest, that it serves your interest. It cannot be, oh, here's a partnership which is a good in itself, but I have a separate set of interests, which, you know, this doesn't. And for, to my mind, therefore, they have to go together. You have to have the strategic autonomy to decide that this partnership is in, in your interest and work it together. That's the only way it will work in a democracy, whether it's, it's in India or in the U.S. I mean, that case has to be made, I think. And being a democracy, you have to keep making the case. It's not that you can, you've made it once and that's it. Is there a long-term view? Uh, you know, you've had vision statement after vision statement, and you're not satisfied? <laughs> no. Uh, I think it depends. You know, we're very similar in that respect. It depends which Indian you ask, which, which American you ask. But, but yeah, that's when, when you say we have shared values, we have shared principles. That's the long term that we're looking at. And, and it works in practice. You know, if you look at, look at South Asia today and compare it to South Asia, well, 15 years ago, it's much more democratic than it was. Then. And actually, that hasn't happened by accident. But it's been done quietly, steadily, by all of us working together at it. Each one of us. All the countries in South Asia, India, the U.S., all of us. But we haven't gone around beating a drum saying, look what we're doing, we're pushing democracy, we're doing this, that, and this. I think that's where shared values actually come in, because that's, that's what you're working towards. And so, yes, I think there is a long-term vision. I do think, I'm going to call on Jonathan just a second, this, Tazy introduced the, the phrase of uh, <clears throat> uh, strategic uh, autonomy. Uh, I, ca I can't imagine that phrase being used in the American context uh, because, uh, and I say this with both irony and, and humility, we, uh, but also realism, the U.S. has this 100-year, if not 240-year, uh, notion of itself as uh, being a unique... Pardon? The city on the hill. The city, the city on a global hill. Uh, leadership and all that. And while the United States is as much a sovereignty hawk uh, as, uh, as India is, as Russia is, as China is, 
it wouldn't use that phrase because our concept of, of our national interest uh, carries with it the presumption uh, that its, uh, its national interest takes account of allies' national interests and, uh, and natural allies, too. That's good for General Motors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Touche. Uh, <laughs> Jonathan. Uh, Shankar, welcome back to Brookings. Uh, it's always a, we appreciate that quiet voice of reason that you provide, which is always welcome in Washington. Um, my question is about China, uh, and uh, you described a relationship that, on the whole, between India and China is relatively predict- predictable within certain parameters. Um, but I'd like to see whether, if have you thought about the implications of, if you will, China's pull to the West. There's a, an unmistakable, if still somewhat subliminal, debate in China, in strategic circles at least, uh, that talks about China's longer-term interests that pulls them into increasingly into Central Asia and beyond issues. You mentioned already counterterrorism questions where there seems to be, if not common cause, at least a measure of common interest between India and China. Uh, would you see possibilities here, or is there any sense of what, from what you know, the Chinese are or are not prepared to entertain in discussions with India uh, to see whether or not you have a, a could imagine a, a broader and, if you will, even cooperative relationship in areas of oversecting, intersecting interest? I actually was, we're at the beginning of that conversation with China. At least we were at the beginning in, in May when, when we left government. And as I understand it, that conversation has just begun. My, my larger problem, I mean, it's true, this is, yes, they are looking west. There is a sense of, of being boxed into the east, uh, that, and that therefore this is where the future lies. And they have been trying to talk to us, talk to the others. But I'm not sure that China itself is very clear about the way forward. And the role of Russia, for instance, uh, and how that, that will work. But my own, and this is one of the reasons why I started by saying that, to my mind, the, actually, it's become more unpredictable. When, you know, it's, it's I think it's, China scholars are less certain today because of this. I think this is why we're all going through this great re-examination of what does it mean, this new China, how will it behave in new arenas, which she hasn't been active in before. And I think that's part of the problem today for, for all of us. And that we, So I'm not sure that I'd say that it's more predictable. In fact, if anything, I think the degree of predictability is gone. Despite all that, all the contact we have, all the access, all the, and in fact, in some ways, there's just too much information. (laughs) Kathy Moon, uh, Kathy Holes, our career chair. Good morning, sir. Kathy Moon, I'm a senior scholar in the Center for East Asian um, Policy Studies. I have a question regarding um, Northeast Asia in particular and the growing relationship with India and it has to do with China as well. So China is India's number one trade partner. Um, but Goods. Sorry? Goods. 
In goods, yes. Goods and services. That's and and Japan and Korea, South Korea, are very eager, have been eager, and are very active in India um, economically, um, also people-to-people exchanges. So I'd like you to think about um, the balance between the security interests of India and of South Korea, Japan, and some other regional neighbors of China, as well as the economic interests that you have with China and these other countries have with China, as well as these countries' interests with you, your country. Can you talk about a vision in the long term of how India might balance the security interests partly as a balancer, a larger Asian regional balancer to China, um, as well as a continued economic partner to all of the countries? Is that something that your country um, has a policy on or a vision on? I'd like to get some thoughts going. Well, we don't think of ourselves as a balancer in Asia-Pacific. Uh, for three reasons. One is, if you look at the balance of power in, in the Asia-Pacific, it's, it's shifting so rapidly, and it's not shifting only because of the rise of China. It's shifting because there's so many actors actually changing relative position that any calculation is, un- is likely to have a very high factor of uncertainty or to be wrong by, you know, you can make... Miscalculation actually is very easy. So you can only be a balancer when you have a good sense of what you're balancing. And, and it's, <laughs> I, I don't think that's, that's the case today. Secondly, because of the reasons you mentioned, there is a degree of interdependence in the Asia-Pacific today which is very high. And we are increasingly tied into that whether it's our trade with China, whether it's with Japan, whether it's you know technology, whether it's financing, any which way you look at it. So given that level of interdependence, you can't do what, what Britain did with the continent, for instance, in the 19th century. I mean, we can't do. I mean, we, we don't think that's, that's possible. And the third reason is that I think... If you come in trying to balance, so will everybody else. I mean, the U.S. will try and balance, Japan will try and balance, we will try and balance. I mean, this makes the whole situation completely unstable. You can't have, you know, a balance with, what, you can have two arms of a balance, but you can't have seven, eight arms and then expect this thing to work. Uh... So we don't think of ourselves as being balancers in the present situation. What we see, however, is a, an attempt together by all of us, all the powers involved, to try and create conditions in which the region evolves in the right direction. That means creating a security architecture which works, which is open, which is inclusive, which also addresses the issues we have. It also means putting in place incentives and disincentives which work. Uh, And this is why issues like the South China Sea, uh, these issues really become, you know, these are the real tests of how we go about it. And I'm not sure where we're going to come out at the end of it. But I do think that we're in the midst of such rapid change 
that it's very hard to start applying traditional formulae from, from other parts of the world or from history. Uh, yes, right there, and then Howard. Uh, Mike Masetic, PBS Online News Hour. Could you help explain to us a bit better the dynamics of the BRICS? Because on the outside, it looks sort of like a clever phrase developed by a fellow at Goldman Sachs, and also three democracies with their inevitable chaos aligned with two other countries whose response lately to chaos has been to hit it with a sledgehammer. And also the fact that the one evident thing that seems to be happening is that China is, seems to be becoming increasingly disillusioned with its all-weather relationship with Pakistan. You can give the mic to Howard next time right there, for the next one, but go ahead, go ahead, Fianca. Well, I think the way the BRICS has evolved is it started off looking at precisely those economic issues which affected them in common. And I think BRICS owes the world economic crisis a big thank you because <laughs> that's really when, when they realized they had common issues. And that, that was the basis of a lot of the work that you see resulting now, like in the BRICS bank and so on. Uh, on the politics of it, BRICS hasn't actually done very much together, if you look at it in practice. And I don't think, by the way, I, I don't think democracies have any monopoly of chaos. If anything, democracies know how to handle chaos better because they, they let, let the steam out and they know what to do about it. But that's, but that's not what BRICS is about or hasn't been so far. And I don't see it evolving in that direction either. Howard. I'm Howard Schaefer, Georgetown University. Good to see you again, sir. Uh, I wonder if I could ask you to reflect a bit and talk to us about how you've seen the evolution of the uh, National Security Advisor position and where you think it might be going from here. <laughs> well, it's, you know, they've... I think Doval is the fifth NSA. It's, it's very young. It's just a little bit more than a decade. I think each one has done the job his own way. And I'm not sure that we've quite accumulated enough experience to actually say it's been uh, institutionalized. But we were the first parliamentary democracy to experiment with an NSA. It's and that's, that's because we haven't been presidential. It's not really an advisor to a president who concentrates power on himself. In our case, the, the executive power of the union is with the prime minister in cabinet. So that's a complex and therefore a unique sort of relationship that we had to evolve over time. Relationship with the cabinet ministers, with the rest of government, but clearly it's a function that needs to be performed because if you look at it now, the UK has an NSA, many other, I mean, the Japan has one, many other parliamentary democracies have, have also chosen to have this one point where you actually coordinate 
consolidate and bring together what otherwise falls through the cracks between ministries or involves several ministries. And I think the world national security issues today have become so complex and multifaceted that uh, you need a function like that. In India, it's still a very small function. I mean, the National Security Council Secretariat has 56 people working for it. That's all. That's roughly where the US NSC was about 35, well, before Kissinger, if you look at it. Uh, and it'll evolve. It'll change as, as government in India itself evolves. I think it's, it's going to change. But it's here to stay because it's needed. Because who else is going to do things like cybersecurity, for instance? There, there are issues like this. And the Prime Minister does need somebody as a national security foreign policy advisor, somebody at, at his elbow. I mean, that takes up so much of their time these days. That you, so these are, and the NSA also, in our case, also has uh, the nuclear function. He's, he's part of the Nuclear Command Authority. So these three functions, I think, will, will stay. Therefore, I think the job will stay, it will grow, it will It'll define itself over time. But so far, it's been the individuals who've defined the job, but pretty soon, I think the job will start defining the individual. But I would assume also, Shankar, that there's a similarity between the U.S. and the Indian National Security Advisor, and that is it depends a lot on the working style of the prime minister in your case. Mm -hmm. there have been a there's been a lot of diversity in uh, the, the way the function is played here depending on who the president is. Uh, this lady here and then Tanvi. Um, Seema Sirohi, um, Gateway House and Economic Times. I was wondering, Mr. Menon, if you could look back uh, to the time when you were the NSA, and what do you think, according to you, um, were the reasons why the U.S.-India relationship kind of floundered um, for the past three years we know about the complaints that the business uh, lobby here had, but I think there were some other probably bigger uh, issues, so if you could sort of talk about that. And I would also like to ask you about Pakistan. You, you said that the power is more evenly distributed. Uh, one would have thought uh, otherwise because the Pakistan army kind of uh, reasserted itself uh, people say through protests that Imran Khan uh, conducted on the streets of Pakistan, and the civilian government was, uh, its power was further reduced. Well, I, I don't think the India-U.S. relationship was floundering, because if it was, you wouldn't have been able to have a visit like Prime Minister Modi's visit. This is not stuff that you do overnight. You don't produce a joint statement or an agenda of that kind of depth and, and breadth with, you know, in two months or three months. This is the result of sustained work. I think what happened really was that you had this tremendous emotional peak, this high with when we did civil nuclear. There was no way you could sustain that. I mean, that no relationship can sustain that kind of excitement or that kind of, and I think expectations were really high, maybe too high in retrospect, 
But maybe it was necessary in order to do that breakthrough, to make that breakthrough. And I think it served its purpose because ultimately what you're seeing now across the rest of the relationship is possible because of that. You look at what you're talking about now in defense, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of technology, in terms of working together. You look at the kind of coordination that you have between your services and your agencies. That kind of thing wouldn't have been possible before. It certainly wasn't. Uh, now, so, I, A, I don't accept that it was floundering. B, I think it's useful that it's got fresh impetus now, thanks to the visit. But this will go on. And as I said, this, this sine curve needs to be, ultimately, it needs to be flattened. The sad day for diplomats and journalists will be when it becomes a completely normal relationship. You'll have nothing to write about. And, but don't worry, there's no risk of that happening for, for a long time to come. Yeah. As for Pakistan, I think everybody has their own opinion on what's going on in Pakistan. And I don't think any of us can say we have the whole truth and we know everything. You're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> we're, we're, coming, we're coming to the end, and I'm going to, I'm going to, if it's okay with you, Ashankar, I'm going to cluster three questions. But have each of them, please, be quite succinct. And just one question. The gentleman there, the gentleman there, and Tanvi. I'm Michael Crapon with the Stimson Center. Uh, nuclear competitions take on a different character when states decide to put multiple warheads on missiles <clears throat> and when they contemplate deploying missile defenses, limited missile defenses. Uh, do you see either eventuality with India and China? Michael, I'm sorry I didn't acknowledge you. I, I have a problem with my vision thing, but wel welcome uh, this gentleman here. Uh, Bill Tucker, we've taken a number of, of, of U.S. companies into India, and um, the Modi government is certainly n knocking down some of the some of the barriers to foreign companies entering Indian market. But there is still a lot of problems by the opposition uh, uh, parties, and of course, the Indian companies do not want competition uh, as is normal. And so what is the chances of the Modi government knocking down some of these barriers and making it easier for foreign companies to enter the Indian market? Tanvi Milan, Brookings. I just had a question about capacity in terms of numbers, expertise, even institutional structure. Um, given the role India is already playing, the number of relationships it has, kind of that leveraging various relationships that you've talked about, um, do you think that capacity is sufficient? And if not, what would you like to see the Prime Minister do uh, to change um, to change things on that front? Uh, to start with BMD and Merv, the, the Chinese have already announced the, they're doing, they're Merving. They've, in fact, they say they've, they're fairly advanced doing that. Uh, I think ultimately, yes, but I'm not sure that at the present levels of what we're talking about between China and India, that these are destabilizing yet. 
because these are still highly experimental technologies on both sides, whether it's China, whether it's India. Uh, I think there's been more talk and more analysis than work on both sides. So I think it's a, it's a long way away. Will it be destabilizing? It depends on how it comes about. And a lot of it depends on the context within which it happens and the rest of the program. And So far, doctrinally, it shouldn't be, if you look at both countries' doctrine. Uh, and I, I'm hesitant to say that's going to change. I mean, both the Chinese and we have gone through several reviews, as you know, of our doctrines, and we've come back to the same each time. Uh, so I'm not sure that... So, so my, my answer to you, therefore, is, is a qualified no, actually. I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be too destabilized. But this is, this is complex stuff. This needs a lot more analysis, as, as you know. About entry barriers, yes, I think it's, it's clear that I, my own feeling is they will succeed, the, the new government. And the reason is simple, because everybody wants to get the economy back onto a high-growth trajectory. And that's across the board, whether it's business, whether it's political parties, whether it's... And uh, they know that the only way to do that is to be much more open to the rest of the world and to get a lot more technology and foreign investment in, into India. So, yes, my answer would be yes. I think that, that will happen. Capacity is always a problem. We only have, you know, 1.2 billion people. It's not... <laughs> it's, no, I think the answers are, are clear. I mean, we've, we've, we've been talking about education, about skill development, about what we need to do. But I think the main problem is is specialized capacity in certainly national security. It's a huge problem, finding the right people for, for the jobs. Uh, I spend a lot of time in my last job doing that, trying to find the right people. And it's the same with the foreign office. It's far too small. 2008, we decided to double it in five years. We've actually doubled it, but you wouldn't notice the difference. It's, it's still far too little for what, what we want to do. And this is true across the board, which is, which is a bit worrying, which means that we really need to do much more in terms of training people. Yeah, there's no question. But that is, is really the big constraint. Shankar, thank you very, very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. And please, spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast on your social networks. Twitter, Facebook, email, Google+, every other kind of Instagram, etc. that you're on. It really helps a lot, and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Care has the power to bring kindness where it's needed. 
It brings out the best in every one of us. It doesn't just. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com See people. It takes time to understand them. It puts the needs of others ahead of its own. And when you... St- 